Hey, what up? This is Sheggs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this week's blog post is titled, When Jesus Doesn't Like Your Profile Picture. To find out more about the blog, please visit www.ShegsAndStuff.com, and on it, through biblical teaching and encouragement, we remind you weekly that God not only loves you, but still likes you. So I once deleted um, what I consider to be a really hot profile picture of myself. Let me explain. Uh, it, it was a photo shoot for a conference I was speaking at, and everything about the photo shoot was just going right. I mean, the photographer just happened to capture my frame at the right angle. Uh, the midday sunlight hit my face at the perfect spot, and my smile was, was on point, and I was rocking this brand new suit with a purple silk pocket handkerchief. I mean, just everything was going for me, right? I, I've never met a more perfect picture of myself. But something was definitely wrong. And what I mean by that is, e even though the photo was of me, honestly, it, it didn't feel like me. Like, I looked, <laughs> I looked more like the version of myself that I often imagine right after I win the lottery. I mean, I was, I was too shiny. I was a little more smooth and a little more, a little too well put together than I usually am. In fact, a few friends of mine saw it and they jokingly asked if I'd received a promotion or if I was running for office. Now, I got to confess, I actually bought into that manufactured image of myself for a few weeks. I was like, holy cow, this dude is hot, right? So much so that I found myself fighting back the temptation to make this image the permanent public image that people had of me. And I eventually concluded that, man, I couldn't possibly live up to the expectation that the dude in this picture was setting up for me. And so I deleted this profile picture. Now, this whole experience really got me thinking about what Jesus really thinks when he looks into my life, when he looks into our lives, and, and how unimpressed he may be about the public image that we oftentimes, many times, project. Now, knowingly or unknowingly, we all do this, right? We all have a public image that we project that we want people to see. We all also have the private image that only people closest to us know. Then, then there's the very personal person that we truly are that, frankly, Jesus alone knows and will someday reveal and introduce us to. And it's in such a scenario that the Christians in the city of Ephesus find themselves in, in this second installment, second part of our blog series titled Seven Letters, the Book of Revelation. Now, if you recall the events from part one of this series, last week's blog, uh, the Apostle John received the most unexpected visitation in the middle of his own private worship service. So he's on the island of Patmos. He's stranded there because he was preaching the gospel. While he's in the middle of studying the Bible or prayer or worship or, or whatever the phrase I was in the spirit means, as John says in chapter one, when, when all of a sudden John hears a voice that scares the living daylights out of him. When he turns in the direction of the voice, he beholds a sight so terrifyingly awesome that he actually falls unconscious. And as it turns out, we found out on last week that in last week's blog post that the voice was actually the voice of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? I mean, picture it, right? You're having your morning devotions, you're studying or, or you're praying and you're seeking God and you're praying in your devotions, Lord, I want to know you more. And then boom, Jesus actually shows up, right? How scary is that? 
Now, more important than Jesus' appearance to John, however, is the message or the letters, the seven letters that he instructs John to send to the seven churches in the region. And these letters, by the way, that we're going to be looking at in the series are not only intended for its initial recipients in those cities, but really for every single church and every single Christian that has been planted since those days. So, so, so one or more of these seven letters we're going to be looking at in this block series is definitely, most definitely addressed to you and to your church, wherever you may be on the globe and regardless of what denomination you belong to. And in it, Jesus is about to reveal the true person that you and I and our churches are beneath all our glossy profile pictures, starting with his note to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. So let me read it to you, okay? Here's what it says. Jesus is speaking to the church through John. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Some versions say you've abandoned your first love. Verse 5, Jesus says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For if you do not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so let's take a look at this, right? Let me start with this. Um, what would happen in our churches if in the middle of worship, right? So in the middle of the third song, right before a collection or offering, Jesus were to walk down the aisle and seat in the seventh row to listen in. And, and, and he sat right next to you. Like how might the tone of that worship service be different? How different would your attitude and your attentiveness be throughout that same service, through the rest of the service? You don't want to know what's, what's, uh, what's even more unnerving than that visual? The fact that it actually happens every Sunday in every one of our churches. In fact, it's what Jesus is getting at in verse 1 in chapter 2 of Revelation, where he says he holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So if you recall Jesus' words in the last verse of Revelation chapter 1, he actually explains the mystery of those things we just saw. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are actual seven Churches. Now, some folks have suggested that the angels in reference are actually guardian angels watching over each church. It very well could be. It doesn't change the point of the message. But, but the context of the letters suggests that those angels actually represent the overseers or the actual human pastors of each of those congregations. Nevertheless, Jesus' choice of words convey the idea that he patrols our worship, think about that, Jesus patrols our worship gathering every time we gather in his name. 
Like, think about this. So you're in church on Sunday. So think about this. Jesus is present with you when we're singing, when we're praying. Jesus is present listening to the sermon. He's present when we tithe or give an offering. He's present afterwards when we're hanging out, chatting over coffee. But more importantly than his presence is the fact that he knows every motive and every intention and every thought behind every activity that takes place under our church roofs. Remember John's vision in chapter one of Jesus' eyes that were ablaze with fire? Like, Like that was a scary image, but really it's a visual reminder that Jesus has the authority and the power to see through, to burn past any facade we may put up. So he sees what's really going on in our churches. Now, why why do you think Jesus is so interested in our church life? Well, well, because it's quite simple. Jesus owns the church, right? Jesus owns the church. He, she is, the church is near and dear to his heart. Okay, fine. Yeah, our, our churches may be jacked up and judgmental, but listen, that's okay. And it's okay in the sense that Jesus paid the price for our ugliness. And it isn't a business of shaping our churches and shaping us as Christians to look daily more like him. Listen, despite its lamentable weaknesses and appalling failures, oftentimes masked by our glossy profile pictures, listen, when Jesus looks at the church that he purchased with his own blood, he not only still sees a beautiful bride, remember, Jesus still calls the church his bride, so he not only sees a beautiful bride in spite of our junk, but he still considers the church, listen to this, he still considers the church to be as precious as gold to him, hence why he describes her as golden lampstands. And it's a little pet peeve of mine, but but all that to basically say, listen, stop publicly bashing or verbally hating on other Christians and churches. Jesus, not you, sees her true condition and is in the best position to discern how to dish out judgment on her, as is the case with the seven churches in the Revelation that he sends letters to. Is there a place for confrontation and for dealing with conflict in the church? Absolutely. Matthew, Jesus himself talks about that. Anyway, I'm done ranting, but anyway, let, let, let's get back into the text, all right? So, so as a result of his divine knowledge, when Jesus looks out and into the activity and the motivations of the church in Ephesus, man, he, he sees a lot of good things going for them. In fact, the first thing he says, he, he commends them in verse 2 of chapter 2 for being a hard-working church. So, so if you walked into let's just call it the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, on any weekend, man, you would find every congregant faithfully engaged in the work of ministry, right? Like, like the Ephesians, man, they, they were not a come-and-see spectator kind of church. Like, like if you were there simply to check out the preaching, man, somebody would be in your face really quickly about signing up to serve on the parking team or hospitality team right? They were aggressive and faithful in evangelizing the lost, handing out tracts, funding missionaries, and really caring for the elderly, even in a pagan culture. And so when Jesus prays for them, he wants them to know that he not only sees their faithfulness, but he also, he's aware of their ministry efforts, even to the point of exhaustion. But not only were they a hardworking church, he goes on to commend them for being a doctrinally vigilant church. So based on chapter two of it appears that a heretical sect called the uh, Nicolaitans had slipped into the church claiming to be apostles and were spreading uh, teachings that were contrary to what Jesus and his apostles had taught. 
The Ephesians, however, proved to be resilient and committed to biblical truth, and so through searching the scriptures and prayer, they tested these wicked false teachers and exposed them to be frauds. And so the, the Ephesians, man, these guys were no joke, right? The, this church was, they were um, conservative, Bible-preaching, heresy-fighting Christians. Like, they could spot a wolf in sheep's clothing a thousand miles away, even on the internet. In fact, they may have even taken some level of pride in being heresy hunters and considered themselves to be defenders of truth, which means they quite very possibly didn't take it too lightly on preachers who preached only the softer, nicer parts of the gospel. In fact, Jesus actually commends them for sharing a mutual hate for that heretic group, the Nicolaitans. And so from Jesus' perspective, the Ephesians scored an A-plus on diligence in ministry and commitment to biblical truth. And, and like my profile picture that I shared with in the beginning, it all seemed so right on the surface. However, something went seriously wrong along the way. Remember, Jesus sees past our glossy profile pictures. He, he sees the true condition of every man or woman's heart and the true spiritual condition of every single church congregation, right? So that means the mega church in your community that you're hating on and the tiny church that you may belong to or vice versa. Vice versa. Now, though the Ephesians were hardworking and doing everything right doctrinally, they were doing wrong the one thing that mattered the most. Jesus reveals it in verse 4. He says, Yet, in spite of all you're doing, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Ouch, right? Like he basically says you've abandoned your first love, which makes me ask, how in the world can one be so committed to faithful ministry service and biblical truth, yet have forgotten or forsaken their first love? Jesus himself, right? But like, how can a church that has strong Bible teaching and very possibly produces new Bible commentaries each year, a church that has an incredible track record of identifying and fighting off false teachers, all of which happens in the context of persecution from its neighbors in a dark pagan culture, how can such a church be accused of or be, 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 be um, evaluated as forsaking its first love? Well, the answer, once again, is actually quite simple, and it's applicable to individual Christians and the whole churches, and it's this. Engaging in lots of Christian activity is not the same as faithfully loving Jesus. Let me say that again. Engaging in lots of Christian activity is not the same as faithfully loving Jesus Christ. Ouch! Again, right? Like the Ephesians were doing everything right except for what really mattered, which was to love Jesus Christ with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, which is the first and greatest commandment. The Ephesians had become so, think about it, they had basically become so busy with doing the work of ministry that they had forgotten to stay glued to the Lord of ministry. Now, alarmingly, Jesus actually says they hadn't just forgotten their first love, but they had forsaken him. They had abandoned him, right? This, so this is a picture of abandonment without regard the indication here is that the Ephesians, in their zeal, had focused so much energy on fighting off doctrinal error that the fight itself became greater than their love for Jesus Christ. Their identity had become wrapped around what they were against than on whose message they were trying to convey. So very possibly, not only had their love for Jesus run dry, but it appears that they had not only lost love for him, but they had lost 
lost love for their community, for non-Christians, for their leaders, and very possibly even for one another. They had become spiritually calloused. Yet, ironically, they zealously continued in their, to, to defend truth and, and work hard in ministry. From a distance, most of us would applaud this church and give them a B plus for, for effort and zeal. But you know what? Jesus was not impressed with their profile picture. Why? Because the intentions and the motives of one's heart matter profoundly to Jesus than our actions. Let me say that again. The intentions and the motives of one's heart matters profoundly to Jesus more so than our actions. You see, you can lead or attend all the Bible studies you want and, and quote every single word from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Not sure why you would, but, but listen, if the love of Jesus and the compassion for people who are far from God is not center stage in your life, then man, you're, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal like Paul speaks about. So let me ask you the hard question here. Let, let, let's address a, a really hard question, and it's this. If you were to put your heart through a quick exam, what would it reveal about the true spiritual condition of your heart? Like, would it reveal a lot of Christian activity and, and next to nothing affections for Jesus? Now, incidentally, you may actually be more involved in ministry now than you've ever been, but, but, but how is your affection for the Lord of ministry? Like, have you become so occupied with ministry duties and defending truth that you're very possibly no longer captivated by the love of Jesus himself? I tell you what, you know, one indicator that you may have abandoned or forsaken your first love, Jesus, may be your tendency to start worrying a lot or becoming insecure about every decision you make. If that's true of you, then you very well may have forsaken your first love. And I know this from firsthand experience because I've had seasons in my faith where my love for Jesus Christ began to wane and, and I just, I found myself easily fearful and I got agitated a lot. So, so might that be you? Because listen, if any of that rings true for you, then man, this letter to the church in Ephesus has your name written in big print on the front of the envelope or email or text or whatever. You get my gist, right? Now, the good news here is that Jesus has actually thought through your condition and has provided a solution should you end up there. And it's pretty straightforward in verse 5. Here's what he says. If that's you, he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So if like the Ephesians, you, you find that your well has run dry, right? That's your spiritual hunger or thirst. If you find it's run dry or your affections for Jesus has been declining of late, then the first step in reviving that relationship with your father in heaven is recalling to mind and remembering the things that you did for him and with him in the better seasons of your faith. So, so think back to the early days of your faith or the seasons of your faith when you would describe it as most spiritually vibrant. Think back then, like, like what did you do back then? How, how did you express your love for Jesus? Like what excited you and, and how did you com communicate with God in prayer? Whatever the answers to those questions are, Jesus is saying here in Revelation chapter 2, I want you to do those things again. Do them again, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus saying not only remember those things you did and do them again, but he, he's calling you when he says repent. He's really calling you and I to abandon and make a clean break from the things in our lives that frankly are robbing us of our affections for him. That's what it means to repent, to turn things around and, and leave those things behind. 
And between both of these actions, remembering and repenting, you will find that your well, right, your spiritual well gradually begins to fill up again and your affections for Jesus gradually increases. And before you know it, you'll be singing with the psalmist where he says um, in Psalm 27 verse 4 that this one thing I ask, like you can hear David's passion in this psalm. He says, this one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty. Man, that's what we long for, right? To love Jesus so much to say, Lord, I'd rather be in your presence than to dwell in the homes of the wealthy who don't know you. But it all starts with considering and remembering how far you've fallen, repenting and doing the things you did at first. Now, let's be clear on this. This is not just a suggestion from Jesus. It's actually a warning because in the latter part of verse 5, Jesus says, listen, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, it's helpful here before we talk about the lampstand to call to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, where Jesus says to Christians, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you as followers of Christ, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's put that together with what he says in verse 5 about coming and remove the lampstand. Um, the idea here is that the church, which is made up of Christians, is a lamp or a light in its community because lampstand lights up a dark place, right? So then, for Jesus to threaten to remove a lampstand, which is a church, from the community he's placed it in, implies that Jesus, if we don't repent, will snuff out its light, or quite literally, shut down the church. To be clear, this is not speaking about taking away your salvation, because he himself says you can't lose that. But, however, he might be able to, he will shut down the church. You know, I was reflecting on this, and it never really hit me what Jesus was threatening to do to the Ephesian church, if they didn't repent until I read about the whole controversy surrounding Mars Hill in Seattle and Mark Driscoll from a few years back. Now, let me be clear on what I'm going to say next. It is not my intention to smear Mark Driscoll or the work of Mars Hill that they've done for the kingdom. I simply want to illustrate through their story what I believe Jesus means when he says in Revelation 2.5 that if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So um, Mars Hill, Seattle appears to have been built based on everything that has been reported. It appears to have been built around the strong personality and charisma of Mark Driscoll, which is why the church easily fell apart when he stepped away. Now, ironically, Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll may have been in many ways like the Ephesian church in that if you knew Mars Hill during its heyday, man, they passionately, like the Ephesians, fought back against heretic teachings and teachers. It appears, however, based on what was reported about the church, that some of them in their leadership were lacking in love and, and compassion. And so starting in 2013, trouble began for Driscoll as accusations of plagiarism and crudeness and a bullying management style and, and unseemingly consolidation of power and just some sort of squishy book promotion ethic plagued him and his church, right? And as a result of this scandal, a church that once was tagged as the third fastest growing large church in the country with 14 locations and over 13,000 congregants in weekly attendance along with a wide global online reach closed its doors in in, in, in uh, 2013. Mars Hill, so, so think about it, Mars Hill as a church organization no longer exists. Its global influence as a powerhouse of gospel preaching has ceased. 
And Mark Driscoll himself suffered the spiritual equivalent of a black eye through this experience, right? So, so it could be said of this church that its lampstand was removed. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, please understand that I take no delight in recounting those events, nor am I even conveying it from a judgmental standpoint. I'm simply using it as a vivid illustration of what I believe happens when Jesus says he can remove or he will remove a lampstand from its place, right? So that's what I believe happened in Morris Hills. Now, Fortunately, Jesus actually loves his church, including the Ephesians, including Mars Hill congregants, and yes, including Mark Driscoll, regardless of your opinion on the matter. Remember, Jesus paid a high cost on the cross to redeem and reconcile all of them and all of us to God the Father. And I point that out to say that in spite of the fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, man, God graciously orchestrated that controversy so that 11 newly independent churches came out of it. And Mark Driscoll himself is actually back in ministry doing what his Savior gifted him and called him to do, which is preach the gospel. And I eagerly want to believe, and I do believe that Mark Driscoll has considered, like Jesus says, how far he's falling. I believe he's repented and returned to his first love, doing what Jesus called him to do at first. Pastor John Piper, author and pastor John Piper, made an interesting comment after reflecting on the events of Mars Hills. In an interview on the Gospel Coalition website, he said this. He says, God must be the kind of general over his army who willingly accepts tactical defeats for strategic victories. I love that, right? Like God allowed that to happen, yet he redeemed it for his purpose, right? Now, here's the best news in all of this, right? In spite of what might happen if we don't turn, Jesus offers a promise, or, or should I even call it a motivation? Um, in verse 7, he says this. He says, those who heed his words will be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Man, this promise in verse 7 is no small offer, right? Uh, do you recall, now let's talk about tree of life for a second. Do you recall when this particular tree was last seen and mentioned in the Bible? If you don't, let me tell you. It was actually in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam and Eve were, giving an all access, were given an all-access pass to go about the Garden of Eden as they pleased. That tree was in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. Of course, after forsaking God's instruction, Adam and Eve were barred from it and the tree was hidden from them. Well, get this. That tree of life still exist today, right? Revelation chapter 22 tells us that that tree of life that was in Genesis 2 is actually now situated on Main Street in the city of heaven and planted on each side of the water of life river. So in fact, it uses plural. So there's apparently more than one tree of life in heaven and their roots are actually watered by this special flowing river that comes from God's throne. Now, in Revelation chapter 22, if you read it, you will note some fascinating features about this tree that's not mentioned in other accounts. These trees of life, which Jesus will give us the right to eat from if we heed his words, get this, produce 12 different kinds of fruit. A fruit, a ripe fruit for each month. So did you catch that? Like, like there's no waiting for its fruit to ripen. They're always ready and they're always good to eat. And more incredibly, however, is the little detail about the trees producing, get this, 12. 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month. That's kind of odd, right? Like, like trees generally don't, uh, trees generally produce one kind of fruit throughout the entire life. So how beautifully strange this tree in heaven must be. Furthermore, it's not just delicious to eat, but scripture says it's for the healing of the nations, right? It's a constant source of nourishment in heaven. And get this, listen, someday you and I and the Bible-thumping Christians in Ephesians and Mars Hill 
and Mark Driscoll and countless number of other believers who have been saved by grace will someday walk down those golden streets of heaven and share a meal from that tree with one another. Right, We're, which is once again, I'm going to get back on this pedestal here, this uh, on this uh, soapbox, which is why I'm like, man, it's pointless for Christians to bash themselves publicly. We're going to do eternity together. And so scripture calls us to consider how far we've fallen, repent and return to our first love so we can have the privilege to do community together in heaven. And listen, the first step for many of us experience this great blessing in the future will be for today to do away with any false image, any false glossy image we may be projecting of ourselves to God and to others, which 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 Jesus sees who we really are, right? And to be clear, I'm not speaking here about changing your online profile picture, but rather I'm speaking of having an honest, open attitudes towards God in heaven, towards Jesus, and frankly, with the men and women God has placed you to do life with. Perhaps if people see how human we truly are and how in need of God's grace we are, then they might indeed be drawn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, through our authenticity so that Jesus himself can restore and reconcile them back to God the Father. Heaven awaits us. Ah, may God bless you this week as you go about your week. I pray that the peace of God would surround you and your family. I pray that the Spirit of God would cause you to love Jesus so much that you would feel free to be authentic about who he's built you to be. God bless you. Have a great week. Check out the rest of my blog at www.shegsandstuff.com to get more resources.